Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Money's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of value creation. And the more value we can create by impacting people or reaching people, and really the biggest way to deliver that value is to create a compelling vision. I think vision is the rarest commodity that there is in the world. And if we're in scarcity, it's hard to have vision. So if you could be more abundant, what you realize is vision is what drives the most value. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. 
Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Garrett, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, thanks for having me. I look forward to this. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you. You know, so I came across your story by two different ways. One was by one of our listeners who happened to have, have worked for you as well. And then right after we booked your interview, Philip McKernan uh, sent me an email saying you should really have Garrett. And I said, yeah, we actually have him on the schedule already. So uh, the fact that two people in our circle of influence recommended you is very telling to me. It tells me that we had to have you here. Um, so, you know, I, I want to start with a question that I found has been very revealing and interesting. And that is, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? My dad was a coal miner. So he just retired last year from being a coal miner. And even my grandparents and uh, my grandfathers and my great grandfathers were all coal miners. Um, my mom, actually, she was a she worked at a credit union for a really long time. Mm -hmm. Then she was a payroll clerk at um, uh, for them. And then she moved on to working in the school district and doing payroll there. And in 2007, I actually hired her because I was having issues with some of my bookkeeper. And I was like, I just told her, Hey, if I'm going to be embezzled from, I want it to be you. <laughs> and, she, and, and I convinced her to come and, uh, she still does my personal finances. She doesn't run, she's not the controller for wealth factory, but she runs my investments and my personal, personal stuff so that she can still judge where I spend my money up uh -huh. until these days, you know? Uh -huh. So the coal mining piece, I mean, that's the, that's one of those, you know, sort of old school jobs. I didn't even realize that, you know, like there are still people who do that to this day. Um, I'm curious what you learned about something that's that difficult physically um, about work ethic. And especially for somebody, you know, when somebody like your dad has done it for a lifetime, like what impact did that have on your perspective on what you ended up doing? It, so it definitely gave me a massive work ethic because I just watched how my dad worked and it was important for him to instill that into me. Mm -hmm. And my first business was when I was 15. I started a car detailing business that came about partially because of my dad being a coal miner. He was bringing home surface vehicles anytime bosses would come into town and cleaning them up. And so I started helping him clean them up. And then he's like, hey, you're pretty good at this. Maybe I can get him to pay you to do it. And that was my first kind of way to launch the business. And my mom worked at that credit union that I told you. So I went to the president of the credit union, who happened to be a father of one of my good friends, and started detailing the repossessed vehicles. And so I launched my first business, innovatively named Garrett Gunderson's Car Care, when <laughs> I was 15 years old. Uh -huh. um, and I will tell you, though, I, that work ethic thing, I, a huge insight for me is, Work ethic with bad philosophy still equals financial devastation, bankruptcy, and frustration. Uh -huh. Because, you know, here I am learning this great work ethic. And when I was first starting my financial services career, I was telling my dad, 
I'm going to work like no one else will work. I'm going to work harder than anyone else you know so I could live a life like no one else can live in the future. And he, and he looked at me. I remember we were on the, the main street of Price, Utah, this little small coal mining town, and his 1984 Chrysler New Yorker. And he just looked over at me and he said, I really appreciate your work ethic, but you could never get back the memories you never have. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah. You know, like I was like, damn, that's right. Like, because I was, you know, in my 20s, people would say, hey, Garrett, what's your hobby? I'm like, uh, business. They're like, oh, you live in Utah. Do you ski? No, I own a business. Uh, <laughs> what do you do for fun? Business. Like, that was my answer to everything. I just worked, worked, worked. It's amazing that I'm still married and that my wife helped kind of get me out of that trap. Uh-huh. Well, I, I actually, I, I do want to spend a bit of time talking about sort of getting into that trap in the first place um, and, and really thinking like that. But I, I want to ask you another question. Um, first, and that is, uh, you know, what, having had this sort of entrepreneurial instinct as a kid and knowing that a lot of parents are listening to this, I'm curious what you would tell them. I had the entrepreneurial instinct because even though my grandfather was a coal miner, mm-hmm. he had two side businesses. One was a TV repair shop where he sold Zenith TVs, like those big chunks of furniture way back in the day. And he played the accordion and traveled on the weekends in a band. And so when I was five years old, I'd jump in his red van, go around the community. He'd be fixing TVs. And I guess when you knew I was an entrepreneur is when he said, don't touch this. And I touched the TV and got shocked as he was working on it. It's like, of course, that's an entrepreneur's like has to try it out for themselves. But uh, I was inspired by that, although it was hard on my family. And probably the most depressing part of my life was 1999 as I was graduating from college. Mm-hmm. And I had job offers because the economy was crazy strong. I had strong investments. They were number two investment company in the world at the time. Uh, Merrill Lynch had offers from them. I had offers from uh, Anderson, if we remember them before the Enron days. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and they were really encouraging me. Like there was safety, stability, like I should take those jobs. And even my professors were like, yeah, these are great offers because it brought notoriety to a small college in Southern Utah called Southern Utah University. But fortunately, I had a dean the dean of that college came to me and said, stop taking advice from people making less money than you. I'd already had three years in financial services while I was going to college. And uh, he actually encouraged me to go my own route. And uh, even though my grandfather sat down with me, okay, just really quick on this story, my grandfather was one of my first clients. And that's just out of courtesy and out of family, right? Like I'm I don't really know what I'm doing yet, but he's like, yeah, sit down with grandma and I, let's sit down. And, you know, we, we did a couple things and they moved some money over to me and, you know, all happy and good. But then in 2001, his sister got really sick, like deathly ill. And my grandfather had two sisters, but the one sister, his oldest, never got married. His other sister had an arranged marriage. This is an Italian family. And then he got to kind of pick what he wanted because he was the baby of the family and the, and the boy. But they stored all of their money with the oldest sister. Well, now she's really sick and she's getting in the hospital and they're worried about this being confiscated through possibly nursing care, medical bills, all this kind of stuff. And so he, instead of me just being, you know, someone he did a favor for, he actually called on me and said, can you help me? And I didn't know a lot about it, but I did enough research and I talked to enough people that I figured out how to protect two thirds of the money that was at risk. And one third, I had measures to protect it, but there's this three year look back that you can't just transfer money um, to try to avoid these things. So I created some at least obstacles and, and ethical and legal stumbling blocks. And I remember when I finished doing that for me, he told me how glad he was, but he was still like, 
okay, when are you going to get a real job? Like there was that in my family, this, that there's real jobs and then there's entrepreneurship, which is not a real job. And I wanted to make my grandfather proud. I wanted my mom to be proud. She had done so much to invest in my career. Um, it, you know, as far as my, my car detailing business up until that point and my financial service business up until that point had invested in so much where I got really good grades. She was really all over me about that and super supportive. So I wanted to make them proud. But it was really hard to do something different, and I chose a different path. But I got to tell you, um, in September 8th of, of 2001, I ended up making more that day than my grandfather had ever made in a year. And I went and showed it to him. And I got to tell you, there wasn't a day that went by for the rest of his life that he didn't grab me by the arm and tell me how proud he was and get teary-eyed because he knew that I had changed my, my destiny, that I had changed our family's future where we could actually build something because he was always there for us from a standpoint of loving patriarch, but not necessarily there as how we wanted to be financially all the time, although they did everything they could. And so now I brought that financial wherewithal to kind of the loving that he taught me. Hmm. Okay, wow. So many questions come from that. Um, so you know, I want to go back to something you said earlier, where you said, you know, work ethic combined with the wrong value system still equals uh, financial disaster. And um, I wanted, one, I want to tear that apart and, and talk about that in specific detail. And then the other question that comes from that is, you know, you came from basically, you know, uh, a family of people who are blue collar workers, like, you know, right. coal miners. And yet you've had a significant shift in sort of what you were taught about money and your relationship with money. So I'm curious how that happens later in adult life. Well, look, my great aunt that got really sick, my grandfather's sister, she had a money management method where she had Folgers coffee cans, put cash in it and put it in the basement or maybe put it in a savings account. That was basically all there was. Right. I mean, definitely living on the scarcity side. So when I won $5,000 as a teenager for being the young entrepreneur of the year, I wanted to invest that money partially to get out of the old dilapidated town I was growing up in and make it to the thriving metropolis of New York. Salt Lake City. <laughs> Salt Lake City, man. I, you know, like to me, that was that might as well be New York City yeah. at that time because it seemed like a big thing, a little bit scary to me. Uh, you know, now I think about how small it is now that I live here, but I, we really <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> um, but you know, it's funny as perspective changes. Um, but really, my my mom would not sign off as a custodian to let me invest that money. She was, you know, like it was all about savings, and it was when I went to find a way to invest that money that I learned, you know, a little bit about finance, but the more questions I asked, the more confusing it became. Because mm -hmm. when I went to the president of the credit union and talked to him, of course, he wanted me to put money in CDs. But I did the rule of 72. I took that interest rate, divided it into 72. And I was like, damn, that is way too long for that money to double. I can't wait that long. So I went and talked to my uncle because he had a bunch of money. He had a really nice home. Uh, my aunt told me that he made a lot of money because he was an executive and then lost a lot of that money in the stock market. Maybe I should look for someone else, mm -hmm. right? So I just started asking more and more questions. And when I was finally 18, I could invest the money and I made a mistake. I invested in something that was supposed to be great, but I did the research on it in my econometrics course in college and figured out it wasn't going to do what they, what they told me it was going to do. It was statistically impossible. And not only was it not going to do what they said it was going to do, which was going to be turned me into a multimillionaire 30 years down the road, it had a 98% chance of not succeeding at all and just completely being eliminated because of the fees and the issues inside of it. So I just started talking to more people and that's when I got offered an internship, which also means a place to peddle products to family and friends. I mean, it wasn't like I was learn learning as much about finance as I was learning about bringing in referrals to the firm. So 
it, it was a it was a, a rude awakening for me in a lot of ways. Hmm. So, I mean, how do you go about beginning to change this relationship with money? Because you know, like I, I realize that this is something that I've had to spend a lot of time working on. You know, something is a perfect example. So, you know, uh, recently I published a piece on Medium titled "Time is the Most Valuable Asset at Your Disposal," and I remember this very distinctly because the I was an intern at this startup when I, li- I was a student at Berkeley, and you know, this was like right before the dot com boom basically went to shit. And the C- the CFO called me to his office and we got to talking. He said, so why exactly do you want to be rich? And, you know, of course, as an 18-year-old, I rattled off like a ton of, you know, material possessions or 20-year-old. And right. he actually told me, he said, what money gives you actually is not all that but time. Um, and time is the most valuable asset at your disposal. So, you know, for example, when I moved into a new apartment, you know, I got all this new furniture, a bed, you know, a couple of bookshelves. And I thought, okay, you know what? It's going to cost me about $200 to get somebody over here from TaskRabbit to come in and build all this stuff, and they'll be done with it in like three hours. I don't even think it cost $200. It was like 160 And my, right. my mind, I was kind of like, what's my hourly speaking fee? It's way more than that, so the $160 is a no-brainer. But it's taken totally. me a very long time to even begin to think like that. Well, look, how many times do people get trained to live within their means? Mm-hmm. And living within your means, yeah, that's important, but most people think about cutting back sacrificing, delaying, not spending, mm-hmm. very either or. Like I think we're programmed, I think we naturally are more abundant. Think about when we're kids. Most kids, you know, they think that they could do anything to a certain degree, but then we get conditioned over life to become more scarce, right? Fear, doubt, worry, lack. If someone else has something that's less for, for, than for another person. We look at the news, there's all this negativity. So there's so many ways that the brain can get addicted to scarcity thinking that gets to people thinking about restricting, cutting back, but no one shrinks their way to wealth. We can't pinch pennies till we get blisters on our fingers and expect to be really wealthy in the future because wealthy is not just what you have, it's how you live. Benjamin Franklin said, you know, wealth isn't just the man that has it, but the man that lives it. And that, that really resonates with me because I began my life with the Ebenezer Scrooge methodology of finance. I was gonna scrimp my way there. I had learned from my family. I'd learned from the best at being in scarcity. And it wasn't until I got an award early on. I mean, I was still in my early 20s. I'd just gotten married and I got this award at MDRT, which meant I was selling life insurance at the time. And when I came out to the hallway at this Vegas convention, I ran into someone I met before. Her name was Nancy Ogilvie. And I'm talking to Nancy and she's telling me like how that's so cool you got that. She goes, I can't wait till you get to the next level. You get to spend time in these masterminds around other people and learn more about money and what it is. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, rookie of the year, I just got this award. But at the same time, I respect her enough, I'm like, what do you mean? So I started having these conversations with her, and I started talking about my philosophy, which was, hey, we'll have kids once we have a million dollars in the bank. Hey, we live in an apartment even though we own 14 rental properties. I told my wife that you know we don't need to have new clothes, and her parents had to buy her clothes because she was a school teacher because I was just in scarcity. It was pinching. It was cutting back. I was a miser. Basically, I mean, I, on my way to be a broke millionaire, my Bible at that point was the millionaire next door. And I thought I could just save myself rich. But the reality is I invited scarcity and scarcity stunts growth. So there's two other ways to live within our means. One way is to be more efficient. Just find out ways we can keep more of every dollar we make because we pay less to tax or we pay, you know, legally and ethically, of course, but we don't tip the government. 
We don't overpay on insurances and we have the right structure to those so there's no duplicate coverages or costs or make sure we have the very best interest rates or structure our loans properly or find where there's hidden fees and commissions. So efficiency, so many people have financial leaks in their life and if you can reclaim that cash, plug those leaks, then you can still live within your means but have more. I call it keeping more of what you make. But the way that is the game changer is the third way to live within your means, which is to expand your means. So to be abundant, what I started doing was being around other people that saw the world from a different perspective, that really valued money, like, but they didn't talk about it a lot because they had plenty of it. But people that usually told me, oh, I don't need anything nice, right? That's not important to me. Sometimes that was justification for them because they didn't feel like they were doing as well as they could, or they somehow felt like money was power, but money's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of value creation. And the more value we can create by impacting people or reaching people, and really the biggest way to deliver that value is to create a compelling vision. I think vision is the rarest commodity that there is in the world. And if we're in scarcity, it's hard to have vision. So if you could be more abundant, what you realize is vision is what drives the most value. And if you have a clear, compelling vision, like for me, I want one million entrepreneurs to achieve economic and financial independence by the time I hit the grave. That's what it excites me. It gets me thinking bigger than what I know how to do by myself. It has me enroll other people, sell the vision to others so they can come and be part of building it with me. And it's not something I have to go alone. And I think that's where the biggest miracles exist is when you say something that you don't know how to accomplish on your own. And I think as an entrepreneur, we have just a titch of ignorance combined with arrogance to say something like that. But as long as we know that other people can get involved, every great invention was impossible at some time, didn't exist. It started in someone's mind first. But if we're in scarcity because that's where our family roots are, because we're always worried or thinking about money, I think financial freedom comes when money's not our primary reason or excuse why we do or don't do something. For most people, money and time are their two scapegoats. I can't afford it. I don't have the time for it. You know, And they say that and we let everybody off the hook when they say those things because then we get let off the hook. But for me, it was spending time with the right people, number one, and number two is creating daily habits. This is what allowed me to be more abundant, to feel more financially free, is I would just start the day with some exercise, reading or listening to something. Typically, it's reading. I might listen. Like, I still have some old school audios that I put in and listen. You know, I pull up stuff on Apple TV and listen in the morning. And then doing something that I would call on the enlightenment side, which would be anything from meditation. For some people, it might be prayer. For some people, it might just be gratitude. But I found that if we start the day like that, it's like putting on armor of abundance so that scarcity is more likely to ping off of us. And then we show up as a better version of who we are when we treat ourselves as a great asset. We invest in ourselves. And we're really selective with who we spend our time with because you can have great relationships, but it only takes one really bad relationship to decimate wealth or to destroy someone's mindset. So I know that that was kind of a long answer. It was a profound question that you came up with. So I had to give it some attention. That was epic, uh, which, as you might have gathered, raises so many more questions. Um, it, it's really interesting, you know, you brought up the relationship piece and I, you know, I'm in the middle of a section about a book where I'm writing about the role that our relationships play in our creative accomplishments and our ability to be creative. And I said, I can find an almost direct link between all of the most significant career accomplishments that I've had and the quality of the people that are in my life. It, for sure. Love that. Yeah. So 
I would like to, to look at this through the lens of, of maybe going through it, uh, a more practical example. You know, you brought okay. up a lot of things like daily habits. Um, you brought up the, the shift to abundance because the thing that I think is interesting is that a lot of us understand something like this intellectually, but we're not able to make the shift emotionally. So first, why do you think that is and how do we deal with that? I think part of it is because we're worried about how we're going to present ourselves, how we're supposed to look the amount of judgment and social media and people. So I think when people get in that situation, there's two easy ways out, but they're not always easy to make that choice. One is if we're not feeling great, if we're willing to call someone that's a peer or a mentor and just say, Hey, I have a, I'm having a bout of scarcity or I'm mentally struggling with something or, Hey, I'm feeling, I'm just feeling a little depressed. I don't feel on my game. If we're willing to admit that to someone that's at our level or higher, that's a trusted source, they can ask us questions that we don't know how to ask of ourselves because the higher the emotion we have, the lower our IQ becomes in a lot of ways. And when we're really close to something, it's harder for us to see it that someone else can see an outside perspective and give us a conversation that can help us get past it quicker. But if we isolate it, like I just got to hunker down, I got to figure this out on my own, I'm going to work through it, that could actually exacerbate it. The second thing is, if we're ever feeling down on ourselves or frustrated or in scarcity or things aren't working out, people tend to go complain and a lot of times they'll complain to people that like a parent might say, oh, it's not your fault. They'll hug you. They'll tell you, you know, not your fault, not your fault. Not, like that's the message. But I think more powerfully, rather than calling to complain, is have a list of the people that you always know how to provide the most value for, that always acknowledge you for that value. And anytime you're starting to feel that slip in, you make phone calls and you talk to them. And rather than telling them of your circumstance, you just say, hey, what are you excited about right now? What's going great in your life? What's obstacles that if you could overcome would take you to the next level? What's your major projects? You find out just an area where you can add value to their life by asking powerful questions. Then you add that value and they're going to turn around and acknowledge you and appreciate you. And sometimes that outside perspective of, of appreciation appreciates your mindset to recognize who you really are, what you're really capable of. And what you really mean to other people, because we discount our own values sometimes and we try to go it alone. And as a rugged individualist, where if we're just willing to be open and honest, that authenticity creates a currency that lets us get past those those detrimental pieces. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100 percent online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. 
Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow. Um, I, I can see why, why you were so highly recommended uh, already by well, Philip and uh, by Nate. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I'm really curious about is is how much of wealth creation is the result of mindset and how much of it is the result of what you're actually doing. And knowing, you know, what we do about some of this, why do we see such a, a drastic variation in the results that people produce in this area of your of their lives? Well, because F, like there's there's time and effort which may or may not amount to anything. Like there's people that are just doing things like you'll hear all the time, oh, follow your passion. Like I hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. But my problem is sometimes people are confused because their passion is merely a hobby and it's not valuable in the marketplace. So they're passionately working towards something, wondering why they're not making money at it. They're working harder at it all the time, but it's not translating because either A, they don't have the right relationships or B, they don't have the right knowledge and skill. Maybe they need to learn some business principles or some marketing principles or they're not spending time with the right relationships. Like when I, I remember in 2008 when Killing Sacred Cows was coming out, I wanted to take it to New York Times. At the same time, I was acquiring real estate from business partners that weren't able to handle the real estate and that were in dire straits. So I'm now inheriting a bunch of stuff there. So my cash flow got really constrained at the same time I'm launching that book. 
And I, you know, I just remember it was July 3rd of 2008. And, you know, I just, that morning I rode my bike to the gym. I listened to an audio on the way there. I listened to an audio on the way back. Um, and then I did my morning meditation and I had a plan that day where that afternoon we were going to go to one of my friend's house that had a pool, taking my wife and kids. I was feeling really dialed in with my fitness and my health. So like had good social relationships. We we're going to go to our cabin afterwards. So things were dialed in from a living my purpose. I'm launching my book mindset. I was doing my regular routines. I was talking to the right people, you know, learning physical health was in pretty good situation, even though dealing with a bit of stress. And then socially I had really quality relationships, but financially I just written a $91,000 check to plan television arts. I just written $66,000 check to remnant rate to buy New York times and wall street journal ads for my book and inheriting this real estate. So I was at a place where I was like, I am cash crunched. I am financially in a really difficult spot. But then what was cool is I got introduced via email before I went to the social event later that day to the very person I was listening to on the audio, which was Joe Polish. And so, so Joe and I end up getting on the phone. He spends an hour and a half connecting to me to people to make sure that my book, you know, they can help me promote my book and even got me a client um, from just that one phone call. And then at the end, he invited me. He said, hey, you should join my mastermind. I'm like, great. How much is it? He said, 25 grand. And it's in a week and a half from today. And I was like, man, I just wrote this check. So I was like, all right, I'm going to, instead of say, I can't afford it, I'm just going to say, Joe, can you give me a little time? I want to see what it's going to take for me to afford that and come up with the money before it's time, but plan on me being there. And then I went to work on the solution rather than using a debilitating declaration that cut it off because I say, oh, I don't have the money. And I think that we're all a lot more resourceful and resilient if we allow it, if we're willing to be with it and if we're willing to like own it and have a good network around us. I mean, that that's been huge because then I met a bunch of great people from that. The trajectory of my career took off. I mean, you know, and I, I, some of the people that I met that I ended up doing business with in 2010, he introduced me to this guy, Patrick Gentempo. Patrick sent me hundreds upon hundreds of clients and has been one of my biggest advocates. That came from me joining that group. John Butcher came from me joining that group. Same. He sent so many clients. He became a client. We became really close friends. He impacted my quality of life. So, like, I think that those are the moments. Like, when I met Pat Gentempo, he was like, oh, man, we have an event in you know just a couple of weeks. I would love to have you there, but I know you're busy. I moved mountains to be there, and we signed up seven clients. I didn't even speak at that event. He just spoke about me from the front of the room, but I also learned, and that event, actually, we learned a lot about health that made a huge difference for my son, who was going through major, major health issues at the time. So I think that the philosophy of this is people over projects, move mountains for the right relationships, communicate with those relationships. And to find time for it, I have a really simple formula. Friends are those people we choose to be with. Invite them to things. Say yes to their invitations. Rather than having a major blowout with other people, there's some people it's good to be just friendly with. I would never say yes to an invitation of theirs. I would never give them an invitation to anything because they're either toxic, they don't want to see me succeed, we don't share the same values. But rather than getting in a fight with them or making a big deal, I just keep it really cordial and I never promise anything or I never try to be in a place with them. And that frees up the time for those really high, powerful, quality relationships, which I do everything I can to spend time with those. Hmm. Okay, so the the other part of the question was the the variation that we see in people's results because the oh, yeah. is, you know we have so much access to information. You know, my, I think one of my favorite Seth Godin quotes is he says, you know, anybody listening to this has access to more resources than the King of France did two hundred years ago. 
Um, I don't know if the king, the king of France was around 200 years ago. <laughs> My timeline might be a bit off on that. Uh, but you know, when he says something like that, you think, yeah, that's, that's true. But then why do we see the variation in people's results that we do? I think that there's several reasons. Um, one of the big ones is that business owners focus on revenue far too often and don't take care of their personal finances. Mm -hmm. And therefore they're not, they're not liquid enough. Like business owners tend to be optimistic in a lot of ways and they redline. So they just reinvest too quickly back in their business before they built up a peace of mind fund or a war chest because all of us are in store for financial surprises. Mm -hmm. Some that derails because they're, they're ill-equipped, they're ill-prepared. Like we hear about all these small businesses that go bankrupt, but did you know it reduces it around 40% in the first five years if they set up a corporation? Why? Because if you set up a corporation, you have one fourth the likelihood of being audited than if you don't set up a corporation. You now have liability protection if someone comes in to sue you. You can minimize your taxes in setting up the right types of corporations. And that's more money for you to keep. So I think that they just end up pushing so far, so fast, and they don't really think about some of the fundamentals because the fundamentals aren't sexy. Mm -hmm. Building up plenty of liquidity isn't necessarily sexy. Spending time away from the business to really focus on what business you're in and your metrics so you can measure how you're doing and just some of the basics. Most business owners don't know what the main indicators of what's going on. They don't know their numbers from week to week, you know, and they don't hire great people. A lot of them will just throw family members in there. I know I did family and friends early on in my career, and that's not always the very best thing to do. Or they, they, feel like because they've worked so hard and they have a big month, they spend optimism. So they think the next month will be that big and they go finance something. Now they have a payment that they're attached to. And if the business doesn't do as well the next month because the marketing changes, mm -hmm. because they lose a big client, like they're just not prepared. The number one reason is they're just not prepared. They're not handling the foundation. And look, when we buy a home, we don't come and show people the foundation unless it's cracked. And too many, too many businesses are built on a faulty foundation that, or, you know, so I, I, could, I could go on and on about that. But if I, if I made it the most simple pieces, lack of liquidity, mm -hmm. too optimistic and focused on revenue and not paying attention to the basics to let them know quickly when there's a problem, they usually find out, see, if they would course correct along the way, like if they knew their numbers on a weekly basis, numbers that they could actually relate to and understand on a weekly basis, yeah. they can make adjustments before it hits the bottom line. Mm -hmm. But if they don't, and then all of a sudden, there's a major issue. It's a forced correction instead of a small course correction. So I know a lot of business owners that don't confront their employees. They don't build a good culture. They just hope that it'll all work out. And they just will their way through it, right? Yeah. They'll heroically come in and save the day. That wears them down. They don't have enough staying power for 20 years if that happens. And then when you lose that energy, you can't deal with the minutiae that normally you could deal with. I, I had two partners die in a plane crash in 2006. And four months after they died, I had been trying to keep all 42 employees together. I'd been getting up at 5 a.m., working all day long and, and getting home. And my wife and son were already asleep. And then I remember right before Thanksgiving, because it was June when they died. And it's you know November now, right before Thanksgiving. I was double booked for an appointment. It's super easy to solve that. Reschedule someone. See if anyone's running late. Find if someone else in the firm could meet with someone until I'm done with the other meeting. But I was so exhausted and taxed. That by that time, I couldn't do anything. I had I was like, oh, I don't know. Um, so I had to all of a sudden like just 
I was, I was, if, if I didn't have liquidity, I would have been toast. It would have been it for me, but that's what helped me to get through that time. And then I had to start addressing things faster. In 2006, I would let an employee stay even if they weren't producing. Now we're having, we're going to address that up front. We're going to have a tough conversation because we can either, either live easy, hard or hard, easy, hard, easy is do the hard thing, like have the conversation now. And it becomes an easier situation. <clears throat> easy, hard is don't talk to them, let them get away with stuff. And then you finally have a major confrontation and a blow up and all the issues that happen along the way that never got addressed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've made many of those mistakes myself, and I can tell you from just hiring one additional team member that we have brought on, like the the changes that have happened and the productivity has gone through the roof just by having this one additional person, our copywriter Kingshook, and he's done amazing work for us. Um, and you know, just the the sort of the things we're able to accomplish, and even even the course correction, you know, we're looking at things, you know, and thinking six months ahead of where we're at right now to think, okay. After we do this, we have to think about what the next move is in order to make sure that we're sustainable. Yeah. And, you know, business owners get addicted to yes. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett says the difference between a successful entrepreneur and a highly successful entrepreneur is the highly successful entrepreneur says no, 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 and only says yes to things aligned with their vision and value. And this is ad-libbed a little bit here. Where a successful entrepreneur, they are being addicted to yes means you might hurt your team's bandwidth, you hurt your own bandwidth, you're not taking care of your health, you're now feeling guilty for not being with your family when you're constantly at the business. I mean, like this is the kind of stuff that happens. Business is a complicated thing because people want what you have. It doesn't everything doesn't go according to plan. Um, we have to manage personalities and emotions. So I think it's it's really important to focus on cash flow. It's really important to build liquidity. It's really important to, to really find people that are the best employees. Steve Jobs in the Lost Tape, if you watch that on Netflix or the Lost Interview, you know he talks about his greatest strategic advantage was hiring A-teamers, that he could get a 100 to 1 return. IBM called it the 5200% principle. And I think people get in a scarcity saving mindset in hiring and they think they're saving money, but they're, what they're really doing is costing themselves production. An A-teamer is going to massively outproduce someone else. And so it's, it's about always cleaning that up. When I hired a CEO, I remember when I hired him and it was 20 grand a month. I was like, man, like back when I did that, that was like putting on my big boy pants and like growing up a little bit. But watching that person versus what I had had in the past, I was like, wow, we had a massive year that year. So much got taken off of my plate. And he told me, Hey, 25 to 50% of this team is going to be gone within a year because I'm going to put in accountability and some of these people are riding the gravy train and they're not a good fit for the culture. And sure enough, 40% were gone and the 60% in the state, almost all of them are still here with us today, you know, seven years later. Yeah. So I want to look at this through a sort of practical lens. Um, and I'm wondering if it's even possible to do this. So let's say that I have a particular income goal in mind or, you know, somebody who's listening has a particular income goal in mind. You know, we're, what, about three months into the year. We may have even finished the first three months of the year. And, you know, people's resolutions are an afterthought now. You know, right. all those goals that they set on New Year's Eve and all that sort of excitement is all gone, um, you know, because reality has set in. But let's say we're, you know, it's March now and we want to reach a certain income goal within the next, you know, Eight, eight or nine months by the end of Dece by, by the time December rolls around. Could you walk me through a potential sort of practical application of all of this? So on an income goal to hit it, I think that there's, there's a couple ideas that I would have around this. Like, I mean, we just do five objectives annually for, for us as a firm, mm -hmm. five objectives for the entire firm. 
right? Yep. So we want 125 people in our one-on-one Freedom Fast Track program. That's what we want. We want 300 people in our Wealth Architecture Premium program, which has some one-on-one and some group. So it's for maybe a younger younger person or someone just starting out in business. And then we want a certain number of people to attend our Wealth Acceleration workshops, which, let me see, that number for this year is 450 people. Hmm. We want 425 people to attend our summit. And uh, let's see, what's and then we want a certain number of uh, leads that we're generating so that we could sell some of our digital products. We don't have really a number on the number of digital products we're selling, just a number on the number of leads that we're bringing in. So those five objectives, if we hit that, we have a pro forma. We know exactly what everybody in the firm gets paid from a bonus, from a salary, and we pay much more on the bonus structure than we do salary because we believe in more in a production economy than a time and effort economy. So if you're going to want to make more money, there's a simple, simple equation to have in your head. Number one, how can I reach more people than I'm currently reaching? Mm-hmm. Number two, how can I more deeply impact my existing clients? So the way that we're looking to impact our clients deeper, we just had a meeting on it. I mean, we like to know the net promoter score. You know, we're doing surveys that way. We've added a position into our firm called a results facilitator that meets with our clients once a quarter to get real feedback on where they're at, how the pacing is, what we could do better. So we're adding these customer service things to create more longevity, but also to generate more referrals. Um, And that came from this impact equation, right? How do we impact our existing clients more deeply? Well, let's bring them out to a three-day workshop rather than not have a workshop. We've gotten huge reviews by doing that because now they get to meet the entire team. They get to start off with an entire map of what needs to be handled or not handled. And then on the reaching more people, we said, well, let's put out more digital portfolio. We now have a weekly publication. We've got four different video programs that people could buy anywhere from $200 to $500. So that was our reach was the video stuff. And then the depth was really adding wealth architecture premium last year. So we looked and we could even survey our clients. What is it you're looking for? What are you missing? What do you want? Where, what's your financial situation like that could really help us build those kind of things? But I think the three to five objectives being crystal clear on what your three to five objectives are, and then every quarter have objectives that are three to five to meet your annual objectives are powerful to get that additional income. And then just continually asking the question, what can I do to impact people more deeply? And how can I reach more people? And then for the individual, here's how you're going to make more money. You ask yourself this. Dan Sullivan asked me this question. He said, and it's in his materials. But I remember after my partners died and I was spending time with him, he said, hey, here's the deal. What are three things that you're going to have to give up doing that you were doing before to have this organization go to the next level? And what are three things that you need to do more of that are really profound? So what I did is I stopped doing one-on-one coaching. I stopped doing sales. I stopped doing admin work like, like the operations. I hired someone to do some of the stuff I was kind of tripping over anyway. And instead, I started putting together digital programs. I started doing more webinars and I started writing a lot more. And those are much higher leverage activities. So scaling your business will help you get there. But I think at at all of the turn, you have to say, how can I bring in more cash flow that isn't completely reliant upon me just putting in more effort so that it's really thinking about it from a scaling type of standpoint. Is that practical enough or is it? Yeah, still that's, kind of- no, that was, that was incredibly practical and, and, and awesome. I mean, it was, it was mind blowing to, to me that, cool. um, 
the funny so the the part that i'm curious about is so you know we look at this sort of at a macro level how does this manifest on a day-to-day basis like you know how does it how does so let's say i figure out what those things are that i shouldn't be doing and what those things are that i should be doing as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about creativity and productivity and you know if somebody is writing a book about creative habits i kind of have a, a pretty solid idea of what my highest leverage activities are they're having conversations like this and writing and that really right. is about it like i think those are the, and, and of course speaking those are the places where i pretty convinced i create the most value so bill gates would look at his calendar at the end of every day uh-huh. and he would just say what did i do today that someone else could have done yeah. whether it's someone we have to hire or someone we already have every day and just continued to figure out how to delegate so here's some of the secret sauce if you want to do what you do best and not have to not get trapped in this you know kind of what feels what's supposed to be a business but feels more like a job this is the key you delegate roles not tasks most business owners think they're okay at delegation but they're delegating a task when the task's done the person comes back to ask for the next thing when you delegate a role someone owns the role they only come to you when they want support in accomplishing something but the tasks that actually fulfill that role they choose and they choose how they go about getting it done. You just make sure that you're both really clear about the conditions of satisfaction of the finished product. So no micromanaging for you and there's empowerment for them because now the buck stops with them. Now they're owning a role. When you can get where people are, are owning a role, you free up so much. Like my, my chairman owns that role. My CMO owns that role. Like those guys, my enrollment director, they own that role. So I'm not tinkering unless I'm asked to come in and contribute. I'm not having to proactively manage every little piece. I'm just getting reports. So I know, hey, are they accomplishing what they're out to accomplish? It saves me so much time that I can now focus on these other things. The next thing, though, is how we structure our days. So for me, Mondays for me are where I get all my business meetings done. I meet with every licensee. I meet with everybody in my organization that's critical for me to meet with, whether it's with the coaches one-on-one or in a group meeting, whether it's with my partners or whether it's with, like I said, the people that are licensing my stuff or people that I'm, I'm part of their advisory board. Those are my Monday-type meetings. And my Monday is just packed with 15-minute, 30-minute, and 45-minute meetings all day long. I finish a little bit early because those are not always like, that's not the easiest day. But what it does is it lets me make sure everybody's on track. They got what they need from me and they move forward powerfully. Now on Tuesdays, that's my project day. So Tuesdays is a day I'm going to be writing books, editing books, working on my talks. You know, that's what Tuesday's there for. And now I'm not shifting gears, meeting with a meeting with someone on the team, but then trying to go back into writing something. I find that those days are just decimated unless I have like a totally different place and location. I go to my home office on Tuesday project day. I use the productivity planner. I, I write down what I'm going to do on those days. I, I go through my Pomodoro's. I basically, you know, get so much more accomplished than Wednesday. Wednesday's the day I love to do podcasts on Wednesdays. I love to develop new relationships on Wednesdays. You know, um, that's where I might do a little bit where I get brought into something we're doing in the firm where I might do a little bit of coaching or like today, um, you know, I did state of the union to my entire firm. So then Thursdays and Fridays are my flex days. I might be speaking on those days. That might be another project day. That might be a day where I'm doing, um, webinars. So I, I, I really structure those first three days and then I have flex days for Thursday and Friday, but I also categorize things into four areas. The first area are things that I'm doing now. 
Things I'm doing now live on a calendar with a beginning and end time within the next two weeks. So I've created space for it to be accomplished. It exists there. It's not on a task list. My not doing now means I'm going to do it, but not for the next two weeks. So I move it to a not doing now folder. And I, this is how I organize my emails. This is how I organize so much stuff that comes in. And then I can just revisit that every week or every other week. Is it time to move it into the doing now side of things, right? Then I have my parking lot. My parking lot is, ooh, I like this idea. Definitely don't have the bandwidth. Definitely not part of my main objectives I'm working on this quarter. But I'd like to revisit it because down the road it might be good. Most of my parking lot never gets done because it ends up feeling like a good idea in the moment. But it isn't always as cool as I romanticized it up front. And then the four things are things that I eliminate permanently. Like the things that I'm saying I never do. I'm just handing it off to someone else. So when it comes in, I'm fully delegating it. But I'm not delegating it like... I have this rule. If someone asks me a question of my business that someone else knows the answer to, I always direct them to the person that knows the answer. That's our role of responsibility so that they are trained to go back to them and I'm freed up. So that's what that fourth category is for is permanent delegation. And so I really build my schedule around those four categories and those different days so that I could accomplish more. And then what I find is if I'm struggling with anything, I add additional deadlines and accountability where people are counting on me so I for sure get them done. Wow. Um, this is just unreal. You've packed it with so much wisdom uh, and insight. It just blows my mind. So I have two final questions for you. Um, other than your own, which we will definitely link up in the show notes, um, what books or book would you recommend to our audience that has profoundly influenced your life? Uh, one that really profoundly influenced me was give and take uh, just because learning the like where I was being taken advantage of at times and allowing that to happen allowed me to get to a different level of peace. Um, Atlas Shrugged, if people can are willing to get through that, like just <laughs> that really helped me understand the, the problems that everyone deals with, but what it means to really embrace being a producer in this world. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite the epic novel, but there's just a few speeches on money that are so brilliant and a few things to really kind of think about. I don't know that I would consider myself a full on objectiveness, uh, that with the book, cause there's certain things I love about it, but I just, am a people person and relationships are absolutely critical to me. But I mean, that, that really shaped a lot of my thinking. Um, and then I, I really love the, the war of art by Stephen Pressfield <laughs> on my desk. I, I'm sure you as a writer probably love that oh, one yeah. too. Yeah. One of my favorites for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I can see now why you were referred as a guest. This has been phenomenal. Um, <clears throat> to me, one of those conversations that I will probably have to go back and replay a dozen times to get everything out of it that you put into it. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish every interview at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's their sole purpose. It's their their combination of their values, their abilities, and their passions combined for a compelling vision and purpose that pulls them forward because then you're going to see a different level of confidence. You'll see whatever it takes to get it done. You'll see resilience. And you'll also recognize the best of what that person has to offer or express in the world. I think it's really attractive. And I think that you know, you, you remember those type of people. They're unmistakable. Hmm. Well, uh, like I said, this has been just absolutely fantastic. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, uh, our, our main company is Wealth Factory. You can go to wealthfactory.com. If you do forward slash WF resources, as in Wealth Factory resources, some of my 
top Forbes articles are there, our cash flow guide for entrepreneurs, our due diligence system before you invest, some of our strategies on you know being more efficient, how to select a good accountant. There's just some great resources there. And if you want, I'm, I'm cool giving them a, a download to Killing Sacred Cows, uh, my New York Times bestseller, because that's also a great way to kind of get started and know where the nine financial myths that hold people back or that are so deceptively, you know, they're like, they're subtle lies. They're the, they're the things that are harder to detect. But once you do, they're obvious. They're the elusive obvious. And it allows people to be much more sustainable and a lot more successful. And for most business owners, it's kind of like this permission to succeed, knowing that the rules that most people play by entrepreneur, especially when it comes to money and finance. This has been fantastic. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.